HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Matthew Roland Villacar. We'll talk to Matthew about champagne, Villacar Salmon, and more. We'll taste a couple of Matthew champagnes that he so graciously sent me to taste for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Born in Champagne, Matthew Roland Billicard is the seventh generation CEO of one of Champagne's longest standing family owned estates. After 15 years working in finance in London, Matthew came home to the family business around 2018, also the bicentennial year of Billicard Salmon. He continues to further tradition and innovation at this legendary Champagne house incidentally loved by critics and psalms. Matthew leads the charge in philanthropy and sustainability with an eye towards people and the environment. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Matthew. Hi, Sam. Thank you for having me. All right. So we're talking to Matthew remotely on our online uh, app, Zencaster. Matthew, where are you right now? I am in my office right at the heart of the estate, looking at the garden. There you go. So I am in uh, snowy New York and you are in beautiful Champagne. All <laughs> right, so Matthew, to frame our talk, and I mentioned it to you offline, can you give us a brief, and I use the word brief because you probably can do a whole show on it. Can you give us a brief history of the family, 
which is really a continuous thread, you know, through the winery um, and the winery itself. And then I want to hear a little about, you know, your journey and travels, you know, to becoming the CEO of the family business. So I guess start a little with family history. Sure. Um, so the Bilkar family and to a certain extent the Salmon family are both very old traditional vine growers, winemakers family. Uh, you know, wine has been grown in the Champagne regions for millennium since the Romans. Um, but we can track back our family history to the 16th century um, of the first writing. So uh, well, being there as landowners and winemakers, um, but the real journey, let's say the modern part of the journey with House Bill Carsalmon, so the Champagne side with Bubbles, began in 1818. So at that time, my great-great-great-grandfather, a gentleman called Nicolas-Francois Bilicart, marries a lady called Elizabeth Salmon. She's my great-great-great-grandmother. Um, and together with also Elizabeth's brother, a gentleman called Louis Salmon, they decide to launch a new venture. At the time, Champagne was... Extremely risky because the understanding about the second fermentation that bring you the bubbles was not as good as it is today. And the quality of glassware was also not as good. So they were very courageous entrepreneur. Um, they didn't come from particularly wealthy background either, as compared to a lot of other houses that were launched at that time. So they were just 20 years old, very courageous and ambitious that decided to put their fate uh, in the idea of, of creating exceptional wines. Um, so that's 205 years ago. Uh, and over the last 200 years, we are one of the very, very last few estates where we've managed to keep it owned by the family. But perhaps I would argue more importantly, pass it on to generations. So it's always a member and a direct uh, heir of that marriage that run the house. And that's paramount for a house like ours that focus on quality and to a certain extent tradition because it ensures a constant thread in our heritage and our family motto which is you know give priority to quality and thrive for excellence quick question you know it was risky to make champagne because of the uh the second fermentation you know they came from humble backgrounds they took a risk was champagne popular as a beverage in those days or was it like a secondary thing or was it was popular? it was popular with a much narrower set of the population um right. all things considered it was an even more luxurious beverage then than it is today even though i mean it's retained uh, a right. luxury positioning because right. first the production was a lot lot smaller uh and also even when the wines was produced because of that lack of control sometimes entire production exploded so it was really served truly to the queen, kings and queens in certain kingdoms, notably in the in eastern part of Europe. Then came some of the wealthy families in America and things like that. But um, it, it's, it, it, it was much smaller, much more niche, but very, very, very high end. Right. Um, all right. So tell me about you. You talk about that, you know, family business only run by family members. Not that long ago, but it's been a few years. The baton was passed um, to you. Tell me who was running it right before um, and when you jumped in um, and, you know, take us to the current on that. Sure. Um, so as you said, we transitioned from the sixth to the seventh generation in 2018. 
So I'm responsible for the house since Harvest 2018. I took over from my cousin, uh, Francois, who was a sixth generation, who had run uh, the house very successfully for the past uh, 20, 20 odd years when I took over from him. Um, I'll explain later. He was later older than you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's definitely older than me. He's, he's in his 70, 75, right. something like that. Um, so we work by generation in, in, our, in our mantra. And the idea of the family is to identify the family member we felt to be the best person to, to take on the baton, to use your expression. So my objective from the first day is to make sure I pass on the baton to the eighth generation, as in when I'm finished. So let's say, you know, 15, 20 years time. That's, right. that's the general mantra that we, we get uh, brought on. In terms of what makes me qualified for it, I sometimes wonder. I mean, I'm, I'm a champagne boy born and bred. So, uh, yes, I train internationally, but I was born here. I, sp I, I spent the first 20 years of my life in the champagne ecosystem. You know, my family name is Bellacart. Uh, that name means something to people in the local community. Um, and that's very, very important because champagne is as much a natural ecosystem than it is a people ecosystem. I, I want to talk to you about that later. I, you know, okay. I want to get into that. But stay with, because that's a really important point, and I think an important thing about, you know, Bill Eckhart Summit. Tell me about when you were younger, you know, because you were a champagne boy, was it always in your mind that, hey, one day, you know, I'll be running this place or not sure? You so, did leave town for, you know, what was it, almost 15 years? Um, I'm guessing maybe to learn English and get, you know, an extended education. Tell me your thoughts with all of that and, you know, what led you to come back, which I think obviously was, you know, your uncle wanted to retire. But fill me in on that. It, it would be a great story if I told you it was all planned out, but it would not okay. be true. It would not be true. And, and I think one of our fundamental value as a house is authenticity. So I'm not going to lie. Um, okay. As a personality, I'm quite independent and strong-minded. So, no, I had no, I was, I was never told as a child I would be the seventh generation taking over. Right. Uh, having said that, I was not oblivious of the fact that, you know, it's run by a family member, but frankly, it was outside my focus. Um, uh, I left, I left, as you rightly said, for uh, England to learn English. And because I'm a slow learner, learner it took me 15 years. Uh, <laughs> but, but in reality, I came back in two, in two stages, um, although one is, is less important than the other. But we have a family committee that effectively is my boss. So it's a family committee I report into to explain how the house is running and what we're going to do. So I, I, I came back to that family committee in 2013. Um, but it's not, a, it's not something that takes a lot of time, but it was certainly something that brought me back a little bit into the focus of Bill Carsalmon as a, as a house, right. as an adult, instead of growing up next to it. And then when Francois, as you said, said, look, I've, I'm 70, I've run this house for 25 years, we need to think ahead. Uh, it was one of these family discussion, which I wasn't part of, to be, to be candid. Uh, but it, it led to a phone call to say something along the line of what, what are you planning to do for the next 20 years? Because we think you do, you do a good job. That's um, it's, it's not the best storytelling, but it's, uh, at least it's truthful. 
it, it is truthful and it's, you know, typical within a family, you know, how things operate within a family than, you know, let's say a bigger corporation. So you are currently the CEO. When you think of, you know, winemaking, champagne or whatever, there's the farming, there's the winemaking, there's the marketing, there's administrating it. Tell me where you have your hands. You know, are you touching everything? Do you stay away from anything? I have, I cut, I think my job is, well, the house, I need four things. And I look at a bit of what I do in a quadrant of four things. Farming is, is the cornerstone. So that can be anything from deciding how we run our own vineyard, uh, how we run the vineyard of other landowners that have gifted it with, gifted us with it. So, right. you know, things like converted to organic, the work we're doing with biodynamic trials, all that kind of thing. Whilst right. I don't do it every day, I set the, the line of what is the right thing to do. Uh, I mean, as it happens, when I came back from France, I even did a pruning degree. So, you know, I'm a pruning master. So okay. enough, <laughs> enough, enough to understand and getting the respect from the teams that whilst I'm not there with them every single day to, to prune a vine, I know what I'm talking about. Um, so farming is a big cornerstone and that also goes for the relationship with the grower families because a lot of families have trusted us with their land for generations and it's important I'm in dialogue with them to make sure we are aligned on the objective. So farming, big cornerstone. Second element is all things linked to winemaking. Uh, you know, our, the way our family heritage lives outside, I would say the business angle is we have a tasting committee. So we have three generations of my family that sit on it uh, and different professionals. And we taste every single wine. We have to agree every single blend. We have to agree all the aging. We have to agree the dosage. So that's an extremely time-consuming thing to do. And I'm chairing that So because I'm ultimately responsible for the family quality. So, Matthew, a question to that. You know, a lot of well-known champagne houses, you know, have well-known winemakers and they basically control the style and all that. Is it fair to say your champagnes, your wines are done by committee? Yeah, they are. I mean, I'm sure one person at some time may influence more than others, but, you know, generally not one singular person is, is you know. No, I, I have a casting vote, but it's one person, one vote. And, and okay. we try always to get to a consensus. The difference with winemaking and taste, and I know that's not possibly the most politically correct thing to say, but there isn't, there isn't something as an absolute taste, or certainly I don't believe in it. Um, we are professionals at it, certainly, but our taste is not superior for that reason. Right. So I think it's important that we all taste together because it's about respecting the terroir, respecting what nature has given us in a certain harvest, but also respecting our own savoir-faire. So it's important that there is a very strong knowledge sharing experience, you call that, that's really the people element. And whilst you know, frankly, a lot of people means a lot of debate, particularly when you're French. Um, we, we, we are all aiming in a direction that every single bottle that leaves the Bill Carson Moore estate have to be exceptional. And I would rather have seven or eight people do that than just one. I, I one one is convenient for PR, but it's not, it's, not the, it's not the way to achieve excellence. And I'm focused, more focused on achieving it, excellence than PR. 
it makes sense and it also utilizes everyone in the family. Oh, so we talked about four things. You mentioned two, farming, yeah, farming, the wine farming, winemaking. So we've done two. The, the third element is what we do now. So, you know, speaking to our community, um, you included, but spending time with the, the bill car lovers, uh, clients, distributors, uh, traveling the world a little bit. I try and do no more than 20% traveling. Um, to, to go and see, you know, go to La Fête du Champagne in the US. I'm coming right. for a launch uh, in Miami in April. Uh, I, I was in London earlier in the week. So, so I have to do that element, which is a good way also to, to keep uh, a good dialogue because the ultimate objective for us as an estate is, yes, we are a guardian of a natural ecosystem and we look after vineyards, but I want people to have a smile on their faces when they taste Bilka Salmon. And if you don't know the people you're trying to put a f- smile on their faces, then I don't think we are maximizing our chances. So that element, whilst I stay very firmly rooted on the ground in Champagne, I have to do a little bit to make sure we are in the right places. So these are the three important ones. And the last, which is a boring one, is, is all the admin side that you have to do when right. you are a CEO of a company and... Somebody has to do it. Yeah, somebody. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I can't tell you that's exciting, but it's 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 it is part of my job. It keeps the wheels rolling. Exactly. Um, all right. So I want to talk to you about a few things in Champagne in general, but I think this is a good time to maybe uh, talk about uh, one of the first Champagnes. You sent me a rock star of a Champagne. You sent me the two thousand eight. And I want you to talk about the vintage for a second. The Champagne, Billacar, Salmon, Nicolas Francois. And we found out Nicolas Francois was, you know, one of the patriarchs yeah. of the uh, winery. So in front of me is the 2008 uh, Nicolas Francois. Um, I'm looking at it. It's got a beautiful golden hue with very classy, you know, uh, bubbles. Tell me about the vintage and tell me about this wine. Yeah, let me give you a bit of context on what we do, and then it'll become a lot clearer. At Bilka, we do four different types of cuvées. We do the traditional blend cuvées, which have the black labels, Nicolas Francois and Brut Reserve. We do the Blanc de Blanc. We can talk about that later. That's what we do yes, in that's Blanc a, Chardonnay. Important part. And we, we will Rose. taste the Brut um, yeah. at, towards the end of the show. We do the Rosé category, which you're particularly well-known in, in the US, so Brut Rosé and Elizabeth Salmon. And, and we do also the barrel fermented wine. So you have four types of wine. The one you're tasting right now is the super premium version in what we do in traditional blend, the Cuvée Nicolas Francois. That's, for me, what I mean by traditional blend, to make it simple, is when you think about champagne, that's probably that category that you're thinking of. You're not thinking of rosé, you're not thinking of Blanc de Blanc, you're not thinking about wines that are 100% barrel vinified, which are much more, have got much more depth of flavor. So Nicolas Francois, big, because it's the name of our ancestor, as you mentioned, but it is our prestige cuvee of a traditional blend. That's the, if you like the classic cut of champagne, that's where this is going to be. And only um, a vin- it's a vintage wine. Only ever a vintage, and, and, and we don't produce it every year. So it's only ever done in the very best years with a very long aging. So the 2008, we only released last year in 2023. So it was 15 years old when we first released it. Yeah, so it's really the pinnacle of what we do in traditional blend uh, for, for the 
slightly technical elements is 60% Pinot Noir, Premier and Grand Cru, 40% Grand Cru Chardonnay. So think of it as the very best of the best of what can be done in Champagne. Um, a proportion is vinified in barrels. The rest of it is vinified in stainless steel. 10 years plus, in this case, 13 years. Um, and, and low dosage, very small quantity. Uh, grab it whilst you can type thing when you see it. Is the 60-40 blend typical um, with, you know, the vintages or it varies by what the vintage offers? So when we make our blends as a committee, we blind taste everything. I would love to do a Nicolas Francois that's different than 60-40, but I have to say there is something magical. And even when we blind taste the 58-42, somehow it doesn't seem to achieve the same greatness as 60-40. So yes, there are variances on or around that ratio, but it's very, very regularly on the nose 60-40. All right, so let's do a little evaluation. So color-wise, it's got that beautiful golden hue, right? That sweet spot where it's not too light and it's it's not too dark. Um, on this On this vintage, I don't know if you have it in front of you, but you certainly can recall, what are you getting you know, on the nose, what, 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 you know, when you were first drinking this and so you get, because you're on a 13 year old or now older 15 year old wine, you get the toastiness. Totally. Um, because that's his signature and the long aging of the Grand Cru, if it's very well made, like it is here, it would, it would give you that. It will give you the ever so slight freshness and zestiness of the Chardonnay component, which are there to bring freshness and minerality. It and, has terrific freshness. I'm drinking it now. And the yellow fruits, um, the yellow fruits that come from the great Pinot Noir. The signature of 2008 also, it's a year that's known for its length. So it, where, you, you, where do you get the length? Do you get the length in the mouth feel and then, you know, after Largely you in the mouth swallow feel. it, how it, you know, lingers yeah. in your mouth? Exactly. So the length of time you have it in your mouth, the freshness that you get in the back palate, so after you've effectively swallowed the champagne, is, is a key element. Some of that comes from our own method. Which, so we do a slow, cold fermentation, which tends to reinforce the freshness in the profile of the wine. Right. And the, the second element, which is critical and is linked to 2008 as a year, because when we do vintage champagne, each year is different. And 2008 is known as one of the great years of, of the early 2000s um, and is known particularly for its freshness. So it's both a signature from the house as well as what nature gave us in 2008. Tell me about the um, palette. Does the palate replicate some of the things you talked about in the nose or other things? The, the, you know, well, you know uh, I the, get that typical and I think you alluded to it. I hope I'm not being too base in describing it this way, but you definitely get that. I don't know if it's brioche or biscuity, yeah. you know, that baked. Uh, am I right on that? Yes, absolutely. The toastiness of that uh, is, is exactly right. Um you, you do get the richness, so that's what I mean by the yellow fruit. Yellow fruit, you think of quince, pear, uh, ripe apple type element, but it's not, uh, it's not like an apple pie that would feel very, very rich. Right. It has that element which is balanced by the freshness of the Chardonnay. That's where blending is so critical to exceptional champagne in, in our view, 
is because you, if you blend well to make it simple, it's when you do one plus one equal three, right? It's like teaming. Right. On your own, you can only go so far. When you put five, ten people ultra-determined, like-minded with the same values, you can achieve anything. Same thing with blending. Right. So, you know, I must say, and this is me talking, that, you know, it's a vintage champagne. You know, obviously you pick the vintages that you think are great. It's a luxury champagne. You know, it's 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 your premier cuvee. Um, I, I don't want to talk about it on air, but the cost of this wine is, you know, so fair compared to the quality that, you know, it makes it one of the great champagnes for, you know, a very fair price because we know how crazy wine and champagnes can get. So kudos to you on that. Um, it's a nice thing. You know, if you, wine is not, champagne's not just about celebrating, but if you really want a baller bottle of champagne, you know, this fits in there very well, you know, on every uh, count. Um, I wanted to get some of your observations about Champagne the region these days. Um, so you've been there, what is it, six, seven years now, yeah. and you've been around, you know, since your childhood. What are there significant changes in Champagne, you know, that are noticeable to you? you know, during your tenure, you know, where your head's been really down as CEO or just, you know, as you've grown up, left and come back, you've seen, you know, things that are significant in your mind? Uh, well, there's an element about climate, for sure. We're going to uh, talk about that in a second. So push okay, that off to so the side and how you deal with it. I, I think, look, Reality Champagne is a very broad umbrella that really covers a very broad set of producers. So you have the supermarket champagne all the way to people like ours that just do luxury restaurants, hotels, and independent retail. So there's a very broad search there. Right. I would say the big, the big thematic are there is an increasing difference between the top quality producers, house and small growers included, that making a big difference to keep that craftsmanship and then the more in industrial production. And I think clients across the world are starting to notice that some more. So that's helpful to people like us. So there is, are you alluding to sort of the growth of the grower movement? No, I think it's, for me, I make no difference between house and growers. I think there are a certain community of producers that truly aim to create an exceptional quality product. Everybody in their marketing say they do, but I don't think that's their intention from the start all the time. Um, and, and that's a small group that seems to be getting a, a, a very good, loyal community of them. Right. And then there are the more standardized products where people are getting a little bit more blasé about. Uh, I think that's, that's certainly a thematic that I, I knew would happen, and I'm noticing it more. The good news for us is we're on the right side of history, so that's cool. Right. Transparency is a key element. So if you look at... 20 years prior, champagne was almost kept as like everything is a secret recipe. Uh, if you look to what we've done or my generation has done at Billacarp, that now each cuvee, you'll have it on your bottle as a six-digit code at the back, which will give you exact percentages of blends, what villages we've used, how we've vinified it, all this kind of thing where really giving what would have been considered the tricks of the trade is a critical component. Very few producers do it, and I think that's certainly a generational shift. 
Um, it, and is then, that the Matthew? Is that the My Origin box on the yeah, back? Yeah. yeah okay. Yes, that's right. So it's a right. dedicated website that he, my great uncle was hundred years old. If I when I explained to him I was doing that, he said uh, he thought I was crazy. He said, "Well, look, <laughs> we should never." So, but this is quite a big change, and I think people are asking for transparency, and they write to us for transparency. In reality, there is no, there is no mystery. There's nothing esoteric. Uh, so we should be able to do that. Unfortunately, very few producers do it. But I was very happy to carry that project. Um, it's a great and then idea. The, the, and then the other element, which I guess is more market-led, is whilst I've been in this house for six years, I've seen, you know, I've seen on the one side COVID with the challenges that it created for a house like right. us that sells primarily to restaurants. So I've seen more stress in six years than my great uncle, despite him, um, you know, going through World War II and all that kind of stuff. He told me, he said, basically in five years, you've seen more challenges than I saw in 20 years. It's crazy. Uh, so, so it's been a crazy roller coaster. On the one hand, with, with a big downfall during COVID, although we are very proud our house ultimately shipped the same number of bottles, but we are the exception. Uh, uh, and, the, and the euphoria that came after. And these are really unprecedented market shift in such a short period of time. Right. Um, you know, to me, it seems like, and maybe I'm imagining this, but I don't think so. It seems to me like there are more growers, there are more champagnes out there. You're hearing about champagnes coming from more regions. Um, the utilization of the varietals. I mean, there are people out there making Pinot Meunier only champagnes. Um, that seems to be going on more than ever. Is that true or it's sort of quietly been always that way? I think the fact that it is known is new. Uh, if you look at total shipments from quote-unquote growers, it's less now than it was 10 years ago. So, okay. so it, the reality of to, total balance in the champagne world is not quite that. Um, but that's what I was alluding to when I mentioned top quality producers, because really you hear of 5% of the growers right. and less. Uh, but there is a good group of people, not all are great, but a good group of people that are trying to do great stuff for the right reasons. And then there is an awful lot of marketing on that side too. You know, when you do a special cuvee limited edition, you can say it's about preserving the heritage. In reality, that has much to do with marketing than anything else. So, so it, but it's good that there is diversity. I think we should embrace it uh, and, and be clear about what we want to do. And I think Bill Carsalmo and, and indeed other and under a small group of other producers being houses or growers, because I think too much has been made of that divide in reality. Right. That's, I, that's I, always feel, I always feel part of the community that want to create uh, an exceptional tasting experience with all the requirements that come with it from exceptional farming to exceptional winemaking to patience to long aging, all that kind of things. Uh, and I always feel part of that group. And I'm delighted if there is more diversity within that group. That, I'm glad to hear that. All right. So let's jump into climate change. Um, you know, you and I could probably do a whole show on climate change, but let's talk about it in the context of uh, the region and, you know, your champagne house. It's fair to say champagne, you know, gets a... Uh, big brunt of, you know, how climate change is affecting everything. Um, just talk to me how it's affecting the region and specifically, you know, how it's affecting, you know, Billicar Salmon and, and, 
you know, how is it affecting the varietals you're using or planting? How's it affecting annual yields, harvest time, you know, what, what you can do, you know, give me a general overview. I, you know, I'm sorry to have no, to no, of course. do um, it in let, a shorter period for, for, of time, but let, you know, first, so I think you need to, we need to set where we are going through now in a, in a bigger historical context. And I'll be very brief for centuries the biggest challenge that Champagne had was to get grapes to maturity. Right. We, we are one of the furthest north. Clearly now there are slight changes, but for a very, very long time, Champagne was one of the furthest north region, and it was effectively the limit to be able to grow vines. So my great uncle that run the estate from the 60s and 90s, when I tell him the challenge of my generation and my kids, or whatever this age generation will be, will be to slow down um, um, maturity, he rolls his eyes. I mean, for, because for him, it was the biggest challenge to get them ripe. And, he, and they had to use sugar to finish the fermentation. So, so it's, it's, we need to put that in the context. Now, if you stop the clock today, actually, the conditions are a lot, lot, lot easier than they were to get the grapes to maturity. Really? You know, yes, yes, there are some small changes, but on the whole, it's much, much easier to make great champagne in 2023, 22, 23, 24 than it was in 1970s, 1980s. Okay. Um, the, the real question then when we talk about global warming is if we start extrapolating the pace at which that weather has changed in the next 20 years, that's where the real challenge begins. Because so far, the region, and Bill Carsonmo is part of that ecosystem in that region, we have benefited from that. Let's not, so let's not be too negative. We can do certain things in Champagne now that we were not able to do up until even 10 years ago. <clears throat> now, if you then think, where do we go from there? If it's five degrees more in 20 years time, I'm, I'm exaggerating here for, for the effect. Right. Then you have, a, you have a mix of short-term solutions. So of, a number of which we've already put in place, like we harvest sooner than my grandparents did because my grandparents right. would harvest in... in mid-October even, and it wasn't even right back then. And my generation right now harvest, frankly, often last, last week of August, first week or two of September. So it's a month, month, a month and a half sooner than it was 30 years ago. But it's not that difficult to do. We work the land differently. So the way we go about, um, you know, planting different kind of grass in between the row of vines that slow down the maturity, uh, the we 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 prune differently, so there are quite a lot of let's call them tactical things you can do to adapt. Right. Uh, and right now, most of the region in reality is primarily focused on these tactical adaptations. Uh, we are mindful of the long term uh, challenge, but so far we can largely get away with the tactical changes. And I suspect, frankly, we have no other choice for the next five to ten years because anything really mind blowing will take that much to develop. Right. And then you have the structural elements. And if we get to the structural elements, then, then is the questions you're hinting at is, do we need to change some of the grape varietal? Do we need to change the width at which the vineyards are planted? Do we need to change things like that? But if we, if we are going down that direction, and I think there are potentially some good options within that, it will take decades to, to put that wow. in place. Wow. So you really have sorry to... For the long, sorry for the long answer, but it's a complicated question. Yeah. I could see. Um, you always have to stay on top of it. Uh, Matthew, we have to take a quick break. 
Um, but when we come back, uh, I want to talk to you um, about the Champagne House and your Champagne House, uh, your Champagnes. Um, we're talking to Matthew Roland Billicart from the Champagne House Billicar Salmon. Um, like I said, when we come back, uh, we'll talk to Matthew about all his uh, wonderful cuvées. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Matthew Roland Billicart. Matthew is the CEO of the multi-century champagne house, Billicar Salmon. Um, let's talk about Billicar Salmon. Um, you alluded to this earlier, and I pushed it down the road to talk about now. And I, I really, you know, want to get into it before we even talk about the wines. Um, you, you, champagne, as we talked about, you know, you talked about four things, you know, about what you do and really what a champagne house is. It's about the grapes. It's about the vineyards. It's about the cellar. It's about the whole ecosystem. But you've talked about, and you mentioned it, you know, at the beginning about the human ecosystem of champagne. And I think when I talk to a lot of wine people, whether it's psalms or winemakers or even writers, um, we don't talk much about, we don't talk enough about, you know, the human aspect. So tell me what you mean about the human ecosystem of champagne and, and Billicar. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Right now, the era is pretending that nature does it all and magically becomes a great bottle of wine. And unfortunately, it's not that simple. Or fortunately, it's not that simple. Um, right. What do I mean by that? I think there are several layers. Um, I, I th think in many ways, I'm a custodian of what I call the Bill Carsamon family. In that family, you have obviously all the team members um, because it matters that even when I'm not there supervising that people understand the values of Bill Carsalmon and wanting to do exceptional wines. And therefore, even when nobody is looking, they're going to be pruning with that much more attention. They're going to do what I tell the teams to do is do the small things right every day and the big things will take care of themselves. Um, and, and that's really this philosophy of being humble, being respectful of nature, do the right things small, particularly in the vineyard, because that's where I think maybe we see the biggest effect. Now, are, are you humble and respectful of the workers as far as compensation, working conditions? I mean, is that part of the overall thing too? 
Absolutely. I'll give you a statistic which in many ways answers this question. Average tenure of a team member at Bill Car Salmon is 18 years. And that the average is diluted by the fact that we, because of the focus we put on the vineyard, we recruit every year. So if I, I give medals every year based on 20, 25, 30 years tenure, I've even got 40 years tenure, and I give, I give uh, between five and 10 medals a year. Okay, so these are big things. The fact that there is that family name is not used lightly. And for me, this is the greatest KPI. You know, you can, I can tell you whatever I want out of an HR policy. Really, if the people come and stay and feel happy with Bill Carsamon, that's the most critical element. Otherwise, they leave. They can go somewhere else. And yes, part of that is the financial compensations. We have profit sharing mechanism. We have stuff, welfare stuff. But it's not just that. I think in reality, there is that element which is paramount, but that's the bedrock of many things. But the fact that they feel like they belong, the fact that, you know, during COVID, I didn't put anybody in furlough. Wow. That's easy. Yeah, because that's I said, we are, we, we are family. We're not going to let you down, right? So these are, you could say small things, but really it, it basically a translation to a very deep, strong, uh, rural, uh, in the noblest sense of the word, uh, values. And I want, and that's also a big reason why being family owned makes such a big difference. Yeah. I mean, and, your, your name's on the bottle. <laughs> exactly. And the other element where it's critical that people ecosystem is our relationship with our rural partners. Uh, often being a house of champagne is, is, is not well understood or people extrapolate it because, and sometimes they don't really understand what a grower really is in reality. Um, but but um, the trusted relationship we have with our grower partners, the fact that they, we all go in the same direction in terms of the respect of, of nature, respect of the vineyard, all that kind of thing, and that trust bond that's established for generation is also a critical component in my human ecosystem. That's why, you know, I lived in London for 15 years. The families knew that asking me to come back from a being based there with my family. They said, well, if you want, you can be based in Paris. And I said, absolutely not. I, I've grown up here. I know that if you want to run the Casamon the way I wanted and we wanted to be run, there is absolutely no substitute of uh, being based anything other than Champagne because I drive by certain parcels every day. I say hello to certain growth partners there. They know I'm there. They know I will see if it's not pruned properly. All of right. this stuff is really, really critical. Unfortunately, many people have forgotten about it. Yeah, I think. And, but, but that's a critical component. So I could go on and on and on about things, but it's, it goes well, also the I people and the clients, the same thing. Yeah. I appreciate, you know, the recognition of that and, you know, the implementation. It's a wonderful thing. Um, let's shift over into the vineyards. I'm interested in the vineyards and your farming. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you control, own or control, as you discussed, you know, with your partners, over 100 acres of vines. Um, and, and you said something that was interesting to me and you want to, I want you to expand on it and then get specific. You talk about uh, prevention over cure in the visit in the vineyards. You know, it's like medicine too. You want to be proactive, not reactive. Um, so how do you describe, you know, the farming you mentioned earlier, organics, biodynamics, you know, tell me, you know, what you're doing there and that's separate of sustainability, which we'll talk about yeah. too. So before we go into the 
terrible jargon. The philosophy we get taught as children is we have to treat the vines the way we treat our children. Okay? That's something that's part of the Bilka Salmon lingo or the, the Bilka family from very young age. When you, you hear that you're six or eight, you don't know what that means, but believe me, it, it, it lands. <laughs> um, obviously, this evolves over time. That belief in the 1980s means something very different in 2020. But right now, you think Bilka, we need 300 hectares. 100 we own, 100 we run on behalf of the landowners, and 100 we purchase grapes and grapes only. Um, that means we use sustainability, sustainability charter as a baseline. I don't want to use weed killers. I don't want to use uh, chemical um, fertilizers, none of this stuff. Um, the whole idea is to try to create an ecosystem where the frequency and intensity of diseases that require treatment, organic or not organic, is reduced. For our own estate, as you mentioned, we have I, I made that decision within the first year I took over. I converted our, uh, virtually all our own holdings in organic uh, certification. And part of that now is also working biodynamic. Um, that's in many ways for us to put ourselves at the forefront of uh, what can be done. Uh, I mean, history will tell whether organic is superior to a very smart... Uh, sustainable farming using very small quantities at the right moment of particular treatments. But I wanted to put ourselves at the forefront and demonstrate that it can be done. And we've done it in the easy years, like 22, for example. But we've also done it in 21 when we took a terrible yield because that's sending a very strong message to my grower partners as well. Is I'm capable of taking that risk. Why don't you? At least following the same path. So it's it's a mix of leading by example, applying the family philosophy. But I think it's very important also to remember, and I know the world doesn't like the, what I'm about to say right now, that viticulture, it should not be a marketing um, discussion. It's fair, too, fair enough. It's too serious. Too much labeling. Yeah, too much labeling. Actually, the reality in truth, if you look, for, if you look in 100 years time, viticulture is about small nuances, adapting to nature, doing the small things right. And unfortunately, whilst I can say that having converted to organic, so in many ways I, I preach against what I've just said, but I've done it knowing that sometimes I wonder if in 100 years' time we will not say we've gone too far in certain directions. So uh, we are doing everything we possibly can to do the very best thing we can do every day, but we are humble enough to know maybe some of the things we do today are not as good as they could be. And it's a constant challenge and constant experiment in the vineyard and, and the desire to aim towards an ever more respectful way of, of dealing with nature that will get us there. It's not today's solution. It's, it's a mix of different solutions I believe will get us there. So is it fair to say your grower partners pretty much have to abide by or buy into what you just described? We try not to be as forceful as the way you said, but... Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you would like it to be that. Yeah, no, I no, I think I am very close to that. But I, I don't want to impose it on them. I want to convince them it's the right thing to do by demonstrating to them how we do it. Fair enough. That, that's, that's the right way to put it's, it. It's a bit like if you think about them, I mentioned to you as family, if you tell everybody in your family, it has to be this way, you're not going to be that convincing. Right. Demonstrate through your action and you will, in, you will inspire and that's the way we want to do it. That is a perfect way to put it. Um, 
let's talk about sustainability, you know, besides treatments in the field and, you know, what you could do and the label terms of organics, biodynamics, um, you could do things like a reduction of water, carbon footprint packaging. Tell me what you're doing there. Uh, well, we have an initiative which we called Look Beyond because I am sick and tired of too many buzzwords and not enough uh, action. That's, I think, a disease in the current in the current world. We, the Look Beyond is two straps for us. It's Look Beyond Tomorrow's Earth. That's all to do with vineyard and viticulture. So we talked about that. I won't, I won't repeat that. And then it's taking a long-term view with the idea of passing on to the next generation. So examples of that excluding the viticulture, because we've already talked about that, we have significant energy usage reduction. Uh, you talked about water. We have huge initiatives for reduction in water. A practical example of that, we use barrels. A lot of barrels typically are maintained with water. We've invested in, in a great technology with steam water. So we've divided our our water consumption for all the cleaning by about It's, by it's less tenth. usage of water? Exactly. Less wow. water users. And just we, as effective? Yeah, same thing. Uh, it's just about being smart. We source uh, all the packaging and everything else. Um, France, ideally, sometimes we have to go to Portugal. Um, we have reduced, you know, the boxes for champagne um, that you get, the gift boxes. I've cut down our usage of gift boxes by 50% between 21 and 23 Wow. Can, um, can I ask you a silly question on that topic and you'll finish the sustainable? Can you make can you make champagne bottles smaller or thinner or you can't because it's a carbonated, vent, you know, uh, beverage? Because there's yeah. a lot of Bordeaux and Napa's that are in like these yeah. bottles that are huge. So you can, but... Uh, you have six bars of pressure in a champagne bottle, three times the pressure than in your car tires. So if you don't want to lose your eye, you don't want to lighten the bottle so too much. So by, by nature of the beverage, you have to yeah. stay within that bottle range. Fair but, enough. But, but we can do like, we're super mindful on our carbon footprint. So what you can do to reduce the carbon footprint of your bottle so far, there are again, the tactical reactions. We source our bottles from a factory which is two miles away from here. That's big element. Wow. We, use, we also use, uh, you, you have noticed actually the bottle of champagne you have in front of you is not green, it's brown. It's, yes, a darkest, right. it's, it's a darkest bottle you can source. Why, is it, why does it matter? Because when you use dark bottles, you use the highest amount of recycled materials. Ah. And, and therefore, that's a virtual circle. And also the ovens that are necessary to make the bottles don't have to use as much heat, as much energy as you would, uh, well, the worst are the transparent bottles, but you don't have to do that. So yes, lighting up the bottle is one component, but there are very big technological limits because you don't want them to be substantially robust and not explode because we have bubbles in ours. Uh, but we are at the forefront of that with our own bottle, which is dark and locally sourced. Uh, longer term, will the technology help us make our bottles as robust and lighter? We hope so, and we are working on it, but I don't have an immediate solution. Um, that's interesting stuff. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye so on So these that. are the techie stuff, and then the, I guess the, to go back to the human side of sustainability, because it's not just nature and supply chain. Uh, I created a foundation 
the foundation Bill Carsonmont, um, which is financed by the sales of a, of a particular cuvee called Clos Saint-Hilaire, which is a, a parcel that's right at the heart of our estate. And that foundation, which is a project very dear to my heart, help local families on all things to do with food inequalities. Because um, even in France, sometimes, you know, uh, it, it's not working as well as it could. So the family has always been very involved in charities through the church, etc. Et and, and now we use that foundation as a way of, again, supporting our local human ecosystem because that's important as much as the land. That's great. Um, so I, I want to talk about uh, St. Hilaire and, and Soubois. Um, let's jump into the cellar for a minute. Um, you make over a dozen cuvées, I think. What I'm curious about, and we haven't spent a lot of time talking about it, and it's certainly, you know, your wheelhouse or an important imprint, is rosé. I'm curious when and how the rosé thing became such a thing at Billicar. You, you know, is it? did you make it accessible? Did you make it right? Did you make it so, right and price it right? I mean, you you that is a big deal thing at Billicar, true? It's a big deal thing, especially in the U.S. Uh, yeah, well, so okay. We, so that's part of it. More popular here. Uh, no, no, it's very popular in France too, but in the U.S. I, I always it's, get it's amazed. It's popular too, okay. Yeah, people think we only make, only make rosé. Um, right. Um, so there are two elements. We've been making rosé since at least 1840. So it's not new. Okay. However, the rosé that you know uh, is, a, is an approach that my great uncle brought in in the 1960s. <clears throat> At the time, rosé was really, really not popular uh, because most of the rosé were very heavy and rich and a lot of tannins. And he, he said to his dad about the time where I took over, so five, six years in, he said, look, I, uh, I want to make a very light style of rosé, very fresh. And his dad said, look, it's never going to work. Uh, but he was pretty stubborn and changed completely the approach and the philosophy on making a light rosé, very fresh, very precise, not overly sugary. Um, and, and it took him a good 15 years for it to real, have a real momentum. And we were really helped by the, the top, top chefs in France, the three Michelin star chefs in France, championed Bill Carsonmont Rosé and said, look, we know you don't like the Rosé, but taste this. This is not Rosé, it's Bill Carsonmont. And really from that on, championed us thinking that, that wine is amazing. Uh, that really helped us. And then it grew from there and in the US and in other countries. So that's really a very old heritage, 1960s reinvention. And let's say commercial success came in the 1990s. So it's all about... It's all about history, doing it right, consulting with other people. I mean, you're, this is based on, you know, what you see, think, and promote. I mean, Billicar Salmon is a foodie wine, right? Fair to say that? Yeah, it's versatile. It's aperitif, pizzas, sushis, and every time you fancy well, that's the beauty of champagne. Um, and that's where you consult, you know, with chefs on, you know, the pairings and all that stuff. Can you, we'll talk about the other champagnes in a second, but while we're on this, can you tell me why champagne is so hard to pair with beef? Well, the close the Pinot Noir barrel fermented can work with beef. Okay. Uh, so there's some option there, but it's not But we not have to let, we have to list. let... We have to let the red wine guys have a little bit of a slot. Come on. 
We have to okay. be nice to them. Okay, very kind of you. Appreciate that. <laughs> All right, so a couple things. You talked about that you make the four different, you know, champagnes, um, you know, earlier in the show, and that's yep. when we jumped into the uh, Nicolas uh, Francois. Um and we're going to taste the Brut Reserve in a minute. But you're doing a couple things, you know, that are interesting and maybe more of an imprint, you know, for your champagnes and other people. You were inspired by the way brewers make beer, you know. So I want to know how that influenced you. Um, and you are a big proponent of oak, you know, in some of your cuvées. Yeah. So talk to me about, you, you know, what brewers were doing that caught your attention and, you know, helped you with, you know, yeah. how you want to make your champagnes. So part of the in-laws in the 1950s were brewers in one corner of the family. And they noticed that our control of our fermentation without wanting to get too technical was not as good as what they were doing being brewers. So they control temperature as a way of controlling the yeast and have a, a, right. a, a lighter style and fresher style and more precise expression of the terroir. So we basically borrowed their technology, but that's something now is basically across every single cuvée since the 1950s. Right. Um, so that's, that's now all the cornerstone of cold fermentation, which is really the, one of the backbone of the Bill Carsanmo style is through that, is through that knowledge transfer in the 1950s. Okay, Matthew, what is the cold fermentation do to the so champagne? We, yeah. Is it a freshness thing? I mean, what are what do you get from that? Think about it like slow cooking. Okay. Slow te- low, low temperature cooking. If you ferment at low temperature, you'll have the most pure expression of your terroir. Okay? Think about like a lobster you barbecue or a lobster you, you cook at low temperature. It's going to smell or feel more like a lobster if it's low temperature than a barbecue, right? So that's the same principle. So it's about respecting the ingredient because the ingredients is what nature has given us. And the second element, which is characteristic, is it gives the wine a stronger freshness and therefore they, their life is longer. My wines typically will age 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years young, longer than most average champagne because of that signature approach. So that's why it matters. It's a pure expression of the terroir and more freshness. So, and using stainless steel too? I mean, brewers we, use, brewers do a cold settling and stainless steel. Yeah. Um, you've implemented that. Were they not yeah. always using stainless steel, you know, along uh, with we are, Before stainless steel came in, it depends how far you go, but until World War II, uh, it was a lot of barrels and then a lot of concrete. Stainless steel came in a bit a bit later. I mean, so we say later. It's, yeah. Concrete and barrels. All right. Now let's talk about oak. Um, you're vinifying, you know, some of your cuvées, which you mentioned in oak. Um, tell me about those, and tell me, you know, what oak does to the champagnes. Yeah, you're spot on. I mean, we one of the largest owners of barrels in Champagne. We own 400 Burgundian oak barrels and, and, and 26 very large barrels, which is rare because for convenience, a lot of people don't use those except the very small producers like the growers you mentioned. Uh, why do we do it? Uh, we do it because it gives a very different texture and complexity to the wine, which you may or may not like. And that's why we've- Describe those textures. Um, more, it's more foody wine, more concentrated, Okay. Uh, deeper colors uh, and more structure. 
So you were telling me, you were challenging me as it's not so good with beef. Actually, if you taste the close Angelaire, so 100% Pinot Noir, all vineyard, Perfect. vinified in barrels and aged for 15 years, it will go very well with beef. But that's a very narrow set. Okay. And yeah. that's why we, we created these two cuvées, Brut Soubois, which is a non-vintage cuvée uh, of this, which goes well with richer food. It goes more with food. So think poultry, think cheese, um, beef is borderline, but it can be done. Uh, so richer style that you would not necessarily readily associate with champagne. Brut Soubois can take this. A lot of red wine drinkers tell us, I don't like champagne, but I really love this one. You know, it's, right. it's fuller, it's deeper, it's richer. Right. Uh, and in non-vintage, it's called Brut Soubois with long aging. We are at the moment shipping the 2016 cut. So, it, you know, for a non-vintage, it's older than a lot of vintage champagne on the market. And, and the Clos Saint-Hilaire, which is an historic vineyard at the heart of the estate, 100% Pinot Noir old vineyard. But right. it's very few estates do that and do 100%. Small growers and a couple of houses do it. Is that changing or people just don't want to get into making the champagnes that way it's changing i think i think it's coming back a little bit in vogue but it's hard to scale up so it tends to be the smaller producers that use barrels because right. if you think about it if you're a house that make i don't know 10 million bottles or something like this and you have to handle 228 liters at a time it's incredibly uh, it takes an incredible amount of time. However, for me, it's the right thing to do for our heritage. We're proud of that haute couture style. Uh, it may not suit everybody's palate, and it's not because it's oak barrel vinified that you're going to like it. Uh, you know, some wines are oak barrel vinified and they're not good. So right. again, it's it's about small details um, and, and doing the small things right that make a difference. You don't buy red wine because you say that's oak vinified. You buy it because you like it. And I want you to buy Belcasa and enjoy it because you like it, not because it's barrel vinified. But it's a distinct tasting experience. And for people that like that fuller type of wine, like the Nicolas Francois to a certain extent that you have here, they can get that with our Brut Soubois and Flo saint so one last question, then I want to jump into our wine list, then I want to taste the Brut Reserve. Um, when you describe, let's take away uh, Soubois and Clos Saint-Hilaire for a second. When you describe the style of your champagnes, you know, the word fresh has come up, certainly balanced. These are champagnes that generally are not oxidative, right? Yeah, correct. Except for, like, on the the Nicolas Francois, you know, I got a little oxidative, you know, taste. But it's tiny, yeah, it's tiny. Yeah, yeah. not, not, you know, overpowering like other champagnes. Um, And that's, that's, you know, the style, you know, that you want to stay with, which, you know, I think is terrific. All right, Matthew, we could talk about all this stuff for another hour, but I got to stop it somewhere. <laughs> but I never let anybody leave without answering our wine list, which is five questions. It's the same five questions forever. I've asked almost 300 guests these five questions. Um, I want you to be spontaneous. Don't be long-winded. Um, we post these answers on our social media. We have a whole... Uh, historical data bank of the greatest wine people and their selections to these answers. So here's the first question. What are you drinking now? What's in your fridge? You know, what are you curious about? You know, are you stuck just drinking champagnes? Cause that's what you do all day. What are you drinking now? One answer. Say that again. 
You want one answer or several? No, no, give me a couple things. Definitely, right. you so, don't have to limit it to one. Uh, champagne, of course, because that's what I do and I'm always curious to discover new things. And then Are you right drinking now, other people's champagnes? Uh, yes. Okay, yeah. so yeah. champagne. Champagne, and I'm spending a lot of time right now on the western part of the Loire Valley. Okay, Muscadet why that now? Because I believe freshness is a luxury of tomorrow. And I believe their terroir are underestimated and there is a lot that can be done there, which is no longer doable in the further south part of France. Wow. What varietals um, are you tasting? Well, yesterday I was with a great friend from Muscadet. So that's Melon, Melon Bourgogne. De Bourgogne, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. So great, great wines, great value. Exactly. A great wines, more importantly, values is always great. Um, so Loire Valley and then... When I'm finished drinking champagne and white wine, I do love a glass of red, but then I'm quite classic. Uh, you know, I do love a good old Pinot Noir from Burgundy. Uh, okay. But Loire Valley, again, is, is strong. A lot, to yep. be do the, a lot to be done there. So always drinking champagne, the western part of the Loire Valley, and always classically reds going to Burgundies. Good ones. All right. What is, this is the goofiest question on the list. What is your favorite wine and food pairing? Not what pairs best with champagne or what you think is a great pairing. What do you like? Guilty pleasure. Go ahead. Bilka Rosé and pizza. Okay, so every now and then we get an answer that nobody ever heard of, but this confirms the diversity of champagne. A lot of people say champagne and pizza. And why does that work? Because Friday night, when you don't want to think about anything, delivery okay. pizza and, and a bottle of champagne in the fridge, frankly, sometimes is one of life happiest that, things. That's <laughs> your problem. That's the lazy aspect of it. You don't want to cook. You know, you want to drink. Why does champagne and pizza work? Why do the food? I think rosé, when you have rosé champagne that are quite light and fresh, they do work very well with tomatoes. So that's why. And I think okay. it's quite hard to pair tomatoes, actually. And it's quite hard to pair pizzas, if you're honest. Okay. Um, and keeping the drinkability and the fact that, you know, it makes the pizza on its own would not be a special moment um, with all the greatest respect for pizzas. But, uh, but if you have a bottle of champagne with it, it becomes a special moment. So I think that's how you can. And I love the idea of using simple ingredients or simple food and make it great because of a great bottle of wine. So now when you, when you initially said champagne and pizza, were you initially thinking of rosé and pizza or not necessarily? I think our brute rosé with pizzas works great Okay, because of its fruitiness. Yeah. Okay, so that's top of the list. All right, that's a good one. All right, I ask everyone this. I ask you for your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. Um, maybe it's fun if you could name some places around where you live and work. Maybe there are a few places in your travels and you do travel extensively, you know, that always, uh, you know, remind you of how good things are. Um, you could list a few. And this is not your favorite or ranking them. These are just a few places that do it well. Because I don't want you to bump into a guy you know, in Champagne, he goes, how come you didn't mention me on that podcast? Um, it's, it's not about that. It's, can you think about, you know, a few places that have just great service, great selection, good knowledge. You walk in, it's a good vibe. Any places ring of that? Which country? 
Um, anything like you go to by you, you know, that is solid in that sense that you're comfortable? So by me, um, you go to last year Champenoise, amazing wine list selection and possibly the best food in the region. Yes. And you go also uh, Les Creyers for their most amazing wine list. And not only, but uh, you asked me about wine list specifically, the food is also great. And then I have a local restaurant in my village called Couvert de Vigne in Chine les Roses. Couvert. for me, because I posted. C-O-U-V-E-R-T. And then De, D-E, and Vigne for vineyard. V-I-G-N-E-S. New chef. That's a new one friend of mine, small, uh, short wine list, but short and punchy with the right producers. Um, and I can walk back home. So that's very convenient. Uh, that's what I'm looking for. Um, and the and other two best, have come then, up because they're among the best in the world. Besides and then know. best wine program. I was there for lunch yesterday. Uh, London, uh, Ellen Darrow's by the Connaught. Uh, frankly, never seen in this world or recently so many truly, truly mind-blowing wines by the glass. And, uh, really? And, uh, massive. I mean, the selection So you're saying crazy. by the glass, not, you know, by the, the seller or the... Yeah. Very cool. Look, um, if you need any example, Eschers of Romani Conti by the glass. Where else do you see that? Never. Um, exactly. That's pretty good. What about... Let's get out of Europe for a second. Um, a lot of our listeners are in the New York region. Is there anything, one place in New York that pops into your mind? You're in and out of here every now and then. Uh, well, I mean, I, I like, uh, well, we have good old friendships with Jean-Georges and Daniel, you know, Daniel Boulou. Right. It makes uh, sense. Guys, luxury uh, champagne, yeah. luxury restaurants. But also, also great personalities, very generous people, very smart. Um, so I'm, I'm voting for the people as well as, as well as the, uh, as well as of course, uh, the, the food and, and, the, and the wine selection. So, I could go on and on because... Uh, of course. Yeah, yeah, but, of but course. yeah, I mean, these are the two first two that spring to mind. And, and they are great U.S. chefs, but I picked two Frenchies. You know, we are trying but to support... But also, locals. those guys are very in tune to wine. You know, I, I know Daniel and both of them, they drink the wines. You see them in the kitchen. They The psalms yep. come back and pour them stuff. They're very much into it, not as a background or wraparound, but, you know, it's part of their culture interest, and they know how important it is to the food. So those are all good ones, and like I said, I'm going to post. Here's the fourth question. The question is, what is your favorite all-time wine? Now, I always need to qualify this. When I first asked the question... You know, I was curious that a guy like you, you know, in a fancy champagne family, travels all over, gets to taste stuff. You know, the initial question was, what's the most rare, expensive champagne you ever tasted? I don't care about that as much anymore. Here's what I care about. What is that wine or champagne or both, and you could do more than one, that was transcendental, that was a gateway, that opened your eyes to wine, that changed the way you think about it. And this is along your travels, you know, as a kid, a young adult currently. Is there any wine or two that's just important to you? I'll give you four, three, four. Can I have three, four? Go ahead, yes. Uh, some soup, some well... I would not be speaking to you if it wasn't for a magnum of Nicolas Francois 1990. Uh, okay. So that, because until I tried this wine, I told my father I didn't like champagne and he hated it. How so, old were you? 
Uh, I think when I tasted it, it must have been 16 or 17. And after this day, I stopped saying I didn't like champagne. I started saying, what champagne is it? So um, can I ask you a question? Were you that little bratty kid that ran around saying you didn't like champagne just to be a contrarian because all anybody <laughs> did around there and thought about was champagne? Is that the with, hind- with, with hindsight, that must be part of the, must okay. be part of the answer. All right. all right. What's the second one? Um, greatest bottle of red I've ever had is a Claude Laroche from Rousseau 1989. So that's, uh, it's got to be there because I'm still trying to find a bottle that's better than that. Okay. Uh, I, will cre- Rousseau. I will credit uh, my first visit at Ponte Canet uh, with uh, Jean-Michel Combe because he was the first one to talk to me about biodynamic wines right. and not, not only the philosophy but the quality of the wine that came with it and how strongly they accelerated their quality thanks to his work clearly made a difference in my own approach. And last but not least, because I mentioned the western part of the Loire Valley, you have to try a cuvee called Gaia, G-A-I-A, from a gentleman okay. called Jérôme Brotodo, B-R-E-T-A-U-D-E-D-E-A-U. Brotodo. And the guy, and the wine is... If you blindfold yourself, tell me that's Muscadet. It's not. It's what well, it is, Muscadet. But more importantly, it's an exceptional glass of wine. And every wine lover full of certainty should once in their life taste a glass like this and say, actually, there is no certainty in life other than we should all try and taste exceptional wine. Those are, are those are all awesome answers. I appreciate that you gave us four because they all have meaning. I am especially... Uh, impressed by your third choice because I think the Ponte Canet um, tasting and effect had a major effect over how you think and what you do. So kudos to you and them on that. Um, All right, here's the last question. Maybe a little harder for you than some other people, but the question is, and I'll modify it for you a little, tell me the best wine you could recommend around $15, $20, $22 retail, American dollars, a red and a white. And you kind of mentioned it two, three times. Muscadet, made by decent makers, fits that category for white because it's a wonderful wine and the prices are still terrific. So I want you to think along that line. Tell me some, and, and the Loire may even fit in there. Tell me what you think some of the best value um, wines out there are. And I always say my kids are in like their mid late twenties and they can't afford $40 bottle wines, but they want to wow for 20 or 18 or 22. So give me, break it down to a red okay. and white. And so, like I said, so, you can do maker category yeah. region. So you have to forgive me because I don't, I'm not that familiar with the price on the shelves. But All right, I'll wine, tell you if you're way off. So, so any wines from Brotodo, even including his entry level from Muscadet, are must, are must try and they can't be that far off it. Whether okay, it's I think you're right on that. So I think that's a good answer. So, so look out for him. And then when I look at, because you know, sometimes your wine list in the US price levels are very different to what we used to. Uh, I am. I quite like a Morgon Côte de Pie from Beaujolais. Uh, You're I think a man I, after my heart. Because Why Côte du Pie? You like a little bigger yeah, Beaujolais? Just thinking, you, you do get a little bit more concentration. I mean, it depends on the producer. But if you ask me about the value wines, uh, other ones also, and forgive me if I'm being a bit too French here, Provence Reds. 
Yes. You know, wines with a bit of sunshine, you're away from the big, big, big names, but people always associate Provence with uh, rosé. Clearly, this is an important color for them, but we work with an estate called Chateau Malheur. And in white and red, frankly, it's it's a great proposition. So, How do you spell uh, yeah. that Chateau? Uh, Malheur is M-A-L-H-E-R-B-E. Okay. And so these are not going to be that far off in terms of price points. They can't. Yeah, be, no, no. Uh, I think yeah, I think yeah. you're in that sweet spot, and you know I think those are all um, you know good ones. Unfortunately, like everything, I mean, uh, Morgone and Beaujolais was so much cheaper. They're still incredible values, but they're eight, ten, twelve, fifteen, twenty bucks more than they were not that long ago. So um, that's why the Loire. Look, I think people should look at I, the Loire. You're right on the time. Loire. Yeah. You're making yeah. Pascaline Le Peltier very happy. Um, <laughs> right? All right. So we end the show with a, um, a feature called the Weekly Wine Sip. You know, every week we'll taste a different wine on air. Um, this week, and I like to feature our winemakers, this week we're going to taste the uh, Billicar Salmon uh, Brut Reserve. Um, I have it in front of me. Um, tell me a little about this um, particular bottling. It's a signature bottle for traditional blend. Three great varietal, Pinot Noir, Meunier, and Chardonnay. You must have in your bottle the one based on Harvest 2019, I'm guessing. So it's spent four years in our cellar before being shipped. Um, Matthew, how would I know that? The origin the number my, is 191193. One, 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 so 19 tells you it's 19. The first okay. two digits first two digit give you the harvest. So um, that's what you said I have, right? Yeah, that's what okay. you have. I knew, I knew it. Oh, I know that's what we've been shipping for the yeah. last six months. Um, and the, the little thing that you will be able to see on the My Origin website is we use 10 different harvests to make this wine. So there's an awful lot of reserve wines. There's a small proportion between 7 and 8% that's barrel vinified on top of what we do in stainless steel. Four years in the cellar, and there's a very strong spill car signature because it's, it's expressing the DNA of the house, finesse, elegance, and balance. Very versatile, breakfast, lunch, afternoon tea, dinner, and after dinner. Okay. Um, All right, so let's, let's do an evaluation. The color is, is a beautiful uh, golden yellow. It may even be, I don't know, a touch deeper than the Nicolas Francois, not sure. Um, but get your nose into this and tell me what you're getting on the nose. Uh, yellow fruits, perhaps more so than the Nicolas Francois you had earlier. Okay. So riper, riper apple, a little bit of yes. um, uh, baked. Uh, you mentioned brioche, but that's that kind of, that's that kind of uh, hint. Lighter, uh, much lighter. There, yeah, yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. oak in this? There is 8% of oak. Okay, so it's it's very... Compared to how much oak for the... 20. The, okay, 20. so it's more than double. But the difference is in Nicolas Francois was aged 13 years, and that's aged between three and four, which, by the way, is double what normally you get on the market. Well, we didn't um, talk about it. You tend to age your wines yes, longer than more. most champagne houses. Yeah, that's the luxury um, of being family-owned. And also right. you, you the desire to achieve the desire to achieve greatness. So right. yes. Um, um, all right. So mouthfeel, you know, classic. You know, uh, a nice medium feel, not too unctuous, not light. The bubbles are beautiful. Um, how about the palate? Does again the palate replicate uh, what you got in the nose? 
you get more freshness, I think, that you will get in the nose, I would, I would say. I mean, you'll have your expression. Right. And also the key thing with Billacart, whilst I know we don't want to get too technical, but all our cuvées now are very low sugar. So this is a dosage of three grams. So this is half or a third of what you normally get with other right. quote-unquote entry-level cuvées. Yeah. What did you say the dosage in the um, Nicolas Francois? Uh, Nicolas Francois, I think it's four gram. I mean, okay, all so our cuvées now are extra brute. Yeah, it's all low. All that's low, low too. Um, yeah. What we've been through this a few times already, but let's talk specifically the brute reserve. What foods would you pair this with? I think uh, it can go anything from seafood, so you know, oysters, shellfish, fish, right. uh, all the way to the dessert category. You know, for people that like. Champagne and cake. Certainly, the Brut Reserve is very well versed in taking care of that. Um, that's interesting. What about in between or after that? Cheese? Cheese, yes. Uh, although okay. Brut Soubois, I would say, would be better because it's got more density. Right. Uh, but che- cheese, cheese, it can easily cope. Uh, cooked fish with sauce, it can cook. Poultry works it, well. Poultry. It, but on the cooked fish, it'll hold up to the sauce, which is really yeah, for what sure. will dominate for the sure. plate. And poultry? Great. All right. Like I said, I will post our wine list answers and I will post the wines that we drank today because we uh, got into some good descriptions. Uh, Matthew, we have to wrap it up. Let me do a quick closing and I want to get some info from you and I will send you on your way. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. If you enjoy the show, leave us a positive review. You can follow us on Instagram where I'll be posting all of Matthew's uh, stuff at sbenruby and on Twitter x at Ben Ruby, um, two different handles, but you can always use the hashtag, The Grape Nation, to find us on both. We are on Facebook, at The Grape Nation. As mentioned, we'll post Matthew's wine list, uh, a lot of good info there, and the weekly wine sip, the two wines that we drank on our social media sites. Uh, Matthew, if we want to find out more about Billacar Samon Champagne's on social media or in general, where are the best places to go? Instagram, you go on the Champagne Billacart and more account on my or my personal account, which is Mr. Billacart, and we have a website which will give them plenty of details. And when you get your bottles, go on my origin. It'll tell you a lot about winemaking. Right. So like Matthew's saying, on the back is a little rectangular box that says my origin, and it's fun. Because most of us people are wine nerds, and any opportunity to get more info on the specific bottle in front of them is very cool. So kudos to you on that, Matthew. Um, All right, so you can go online or you can go on social and follow everyone. I want to thank our guest, Matthew Roland Billicar. Um, for joining us. Thank you to our engineer, Armin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.